<clears throat> okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Last week, we took a look at the crucifixion of Jesus. This morning, we're going to finish up chapter 19 with a look at Jesus' death and burial. So I'm going to begin in verse 28, and uh, we'll jump right in. Verses 28 to 30, John 19. It says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, here we have the final moments uh, of uh, leading up to, to Jesus' death. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all add some additional information. Let me fill in some of the gaps by uh, taking excerpts from each of their Gospels. Matthew 25, 50 to 30, adds this. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, John doesn't tell us that it's a loud voice. But Matthew does. When Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life and they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Mark adds this in chapter 15, verses 37 and 38. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And Luke adds this. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The death of Jesus was a dramatic event. It permanently altered the destiny of humanity. It forever changed the relationship between the creator and his creation, between God and people, between our heavenly father and us, his children. And creation itself reacts. The earth shook, Scripture tells us. Rocks were split. The sun stopped shining. Obviously, there was a, there was a major eclipse that took place at, the, at those very hours. It tells us, the Scripture tells us that tombs broke open and the life-giving resurrection power of Christ would soon bring life to these once-dead bodies occupying these now open tombs. That must have been some sight to see. Now, I mean, could you imagine what would happen in Charlottetown if tombs opened up and dead people started walking around? That would shake some people up. They'd be talking about it at church on Sunday morning. And Scripture tells us that the curtain or the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place is torn in two. This is amazing, guys. And it's torn in two from top to bottom, not from bottom to top. It's torn from God to man, not man to God. This veil, which symbolized the separation between God and man, is rent completely in two. Some researchers say that this curtain or this veil 
was as much as 60 feet high, and get this, it was four inches thick. How, how tough does a material, a woven material, need to be if it's four inches thick, right? The tearing of this curtain, this huge, tall, thick curtain, and completely in two from top to bottom, can only be accomplished supernaturally. It was absolutely the work of God Almighty. I can only imagine that for thousands of years, God had longed to rend this symbol of separation. Ever since that fateful day in the garden, when relationship was broken, and that wedge was put in place. So access to the most holy place is granted. The resting place of the Ark of the Covenant, this foreshadowing of the mercy seat, this symbol of the very throne of God on earth. What previously could only be entered on a special day by a special person with special um, processes and protocols, what previously could only be entered by, with special preparation by the chief priest on one high holy day a year, is now open to all. No more ceremony. No more religious rules. No more protocol. Listen to me. There is no protocol between close friends. There's no protocol between close My close friends don't have to ring my doorbell. They just walk right in. My close friends, if they're thirsty, they go and get themselves a drink. My food is their food. The door is open. This is what God's telling us. Beforehand, there was all kinds of protocol. They had to jump through all these hoops, do all the right things right. Click off every little box. Jump through every hoop. But now the curtain's torn in two. Jesus made a way where there absolutely was no way. There's no longer necessary protocol. He calls us friends. Invites us in. The door to God is open. And all of us are welcomed in. Jesus, the door, has made a way for us to enter into the very presence of the triune God. And what does Jesus say? What are his final words? It is finished. And so with a final breath, he cries out, Scripture makes it clear, in a loud voice. I suspect that this, this wine vinegar that Jesus accepted was just enough to, to wet his parched lips and soothe his dry throat. Just enough to allow for one final cry, one final shout. We get any fancier the movie Braveheart? I love Braveheart. It's my favorite all-time movie. When I need to be inspired, when I need to be encouraged as a leader, I love it, right? And here at, at, the, at the final moment in that movie where they're trying to get him to give in, right? He lets out one final shout of freedom! And he gives it up. That, I think that's a pretty good picture of what we see here. When Jesus cries out, it is finished. In the ancient Greek, it's the word tetelestai. And i got to tell you, this isn't a cry of defeat. This isn't a cry of death. This is a shout of victory. Tetelestai is a cry of a winner, not of a loser. It means accomplished. It means completed. It means fulfilled. 
So I ask this question, what is finished? It's the work of the cross. What is the it that's finished? Well, it's the work of the cross. It's the eternal purpose of the cross. It's been completed and fulfilled and accomplished. What is finished? The disease of sin has been cured. That's what's finished. On the cross, Jesus became our sin. He didn't wear our sin like a, like a shirt that I have on now or some kind of robe. He became our sin through and through. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Jesus took in his own body the sins of all humanity for all time. Out of his extravagant love for us, Jesus bore in his own flesh, as it were, the cancer of sin. Because he was the only one in existence who could endure the antidote for that sin. Jesus took not only the cancer of sin, but the antidote as well. The chemotherapy, if you will. Which is the very wrath of God. Now make no mistake. This wrath of God was not directed at the objects of God's divine affection. The wrath of God wasn't directed at Jesus, and it wasn't, and it's never, ever directed at you. The wrath of God was directed at that which was killing those that God loves. The cancer of sin. Not you, but the disease of sin that's killing you. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul writes, he says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ on the cross. Get this, not counting people's sins against them. If those verses, if that verse isn't underlined in your Bible, I don't know why. If you suffer with guilt or condemnation or shame, memorize this verse. Because God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. He was in Christ Jesus on the cross, reconciling us to him for this. So complete was the antidote for sin. So complete was the chemotherapy, the spiritual chemotherapy for the cancer of sin that scripture tells us that he's not counting people's sins against them. Guys, that's good news. The, the gospel is really good news. It's astonishingly good news. I think most of the church fails to recognize just how good this good news really is. Not counting people's sins against them. How often do you hear that message in church? Not often enough. So what was finished? I think this is what's meant. The cure was complete. The chemotherapy was finished. The cancerous sin was, was utterly annihilated and destroyed. The relationship between God and his children is restored. The children that he so desperately loves is restored. And the veil is torn in two from top to bottom. This is the working of God. This it could only be, it's not the work of man. That's part of the symbolism there. It doesn't just tell us that the, that the veil was torn in two. It was torn from top to bottom. Imagine going into work that day. You're one of the high priests and you see that curtain torn in two. Whew. It's going to rock your world. Somebody's getting fired, right? <laughs> the cure, what was finished, the cure for sin was, was complete. 
I believe that this is the very cup that Jesus accepted in the Garden of Gethsemane. He drank the wrath of God. He drank that chemotherapy for the cancer of sin within us and annihilated it. And then verse 30 tells us that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Guys, no one took Jesus' life from him. Not the scribes, the Pharisees, or the chief priests. Not Pilate, not the Roman soldiers, not even God the Father took Jesus' life from him. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, Jesus says, the Father loves me. Because I laid down my own life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Death had no hold over Jesus. It had no hold whatsoever over the sinless Son of God. The only way Jesus was going to die was by choosing to lay down his life. And that's exactly what he did. Out of the enormity of his love for you and for me. Scripture tells us that he gave up his spirit. If he refused to give up his spirit, he'd still be on that cross right now. The only way he dies is that he laid down his life. St. Augustine says it this way, concerning Jesus' death. He says, he gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. Jesus gave up his life. Let's move on to verses 31 and 37. And now, it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found he had already died. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as the other scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. So they did not break Jesus' legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side instead. This was not according to custom. It was customary to break the legs. The purpose for this is that if you broke the legs of a person who had been crucified, it would expedite death. It would expedite death by suffocation. A person who's crucified, in order to, because of the awkward position that they're in, in order to take a breath, they would have to push up on their legs to grasp a breath. With the legs broken, that becomes nearly impossible, and, sh and death becomes um, more certain more quickly. Um, in doing this, the soldiers unknowingly fulfilled messianic prophecy. Psalm 34.20, it says, He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. And Zechariah 12.10, which says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child. And grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son. 
So this is just another sign, one additional sign that God's absolutely in control. This, from the, I mean, I can imagine Peter and, and James and Andrew, they're looking from the outside thinking their whole world is shattered. Things are entirely out of control. God's completely in control. It may seem like chaos from the earthly perspective, from God's perspective, this has been the plan since the foundation of the earth. And uh, the text tells us here that when they pierced Jesus' side, a sudden flow of blood and water came forth. I've heard it said that this is an indication that Jesus gave every last drop of his blood for us. He loved us so much that he gave all. Let's finish up chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he had feared the Jew Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. He met Jesus at night because he didn't want to mess up his thing with his friends, you know. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So it was customary to leave the bodies of people who had been crucified, just to leave them on those crosses until they rotted away or until wild animals came and just ate them. That was how it usually went. But the Jewish religious leaders, they didn't want any such horror to be displayed on the Passover. Now, trust me, this was in no way a display of compassion for Jesus or empathy for his family. They just didn't want their religious ceremony to get ruined. And from time to time, under certain circumstances, Romans were known to grant corpses of executed men to family or friends so that they might have a proper burial. So Joseph and Nicodemus, out of love and respect for Jesus, they follow the burial customs of the day, well, at least as best as they could, considering that time was short. They were about to enter into uh, the Passover Sabbath. They put Jesus in a new, unused tomb near Calvary. I think it's safe to, to speculate that a rich man like Joseph of Arimathea would probably have had a tomb that was carved out of solid rock. Typically, a tomb like this would, would have a small, narrow entrance and perhaps one or more compartments where bodies would be laid out. It would be more like a crypt than a grave. And then after being somewhat mummified um, with the ointments and the spices and the linen strips, they would, they would lay out the bodies uh, in, this, in tombs like this. Some of the research I did uh, said that usually the Jews, would, they'd leave the bodies alone uh, for years until the body would decay down to just the bones. And then they would collect those bones and they'd put them in small stone boxes are called ossuaries. And the ossuary then would remain in the tomb 
with the remains of the other family members. Um, a little bit more about this tomb. The door of a tomb like this was typically uh, made out of a heavy circular-shaped stone, and it would run into a groove and settle down into a channel. The reason being that this would make it very difficult to move it, and it, it would ensure uh, that uh, the remains of loved ones would be left undisturbed. It would require a couple of very strong men, maybe two or three of them, to be able to move this. So um, teenagers doing bad things or somebody with other bad intentions couldn't just on their own move one of these stones and get in there. It provides yeah, grave robbers. It, it, it was for security purposes. The point was that ensure that no one would disturb the remains. So tombs like this were very expensive. It was really quite a sacrifice on Joseph of Arimathea's uh, side to, it was really generous of him to give up his tomb. However, but when you think about it, think about it, Jesus was only going to use it for a couple of days anyway. You know? Joseph could have the tomb back after that. So final word on John 19, 42. It especially tells us that Jesus' tomb was close at the place of the crucifixion. I think this is significant. It reminds us that in God's plans, the cross and the power of the resurrection are permanently and closely related. The cross, the place of the cross, and the place of the resurrection are close by to one another. So where are you today? Where are you on your spiritual journey? Has this been a spiritual Good Friday season for you? Has this been a season of crucifixion? Then be encouraged, my friend. <laughs> Better days are coming. At the beginning of the year, I gave you some insights the Lord gave me in the coming year. And I told you that change was coming. Do you guys remember that? I said that we were entering into a change of seasons from a spiritual winter season to a spiritual springtime. That sounds like the difference between the cross and resurrection, doesn't it? I told you that the that first there would be a shaking, and then there would be change. Change for the better. First there would be a shaking, and then there would be promotion. That kind of sounds like the cross and the resurrection as well. And I felt that we would, we would see this take place in a parallel to the natural seasons. That as we, in the natural, go from winter to springtime, I felt like this shaking and this change would take place. I think that's what we're experiencing now. I think that's exactly what we're in. Shaking and change. So my friends, to quote an old Christian song, maybe some of you remember it, says, it may seem like Friday night, but Sunday's on its way. So even if you find yourself in a winter season, if you find yourself in a season where things are being crucified, know that springtime is coming. Maybe it feels like everything's shaking. Trust me, things are about to change. Maybe it feels like Friday night. Sunday's on its way. Resurrection is coming. The cross is significant. The cross is powerful. The cross is not the final word. There's always more. There's absolutely always more. Hallelujah.
So, let's close this morning's service by standing and singing and declaring together today, we will not be shaken. <laughs>